0: Well, good morning again. It's uh, really great to be back. We've been doing so much traveling lately, and Sarah and I last week were up in Calgary at a special needs conference, and um, it was a special needs ministry conference, and it was fantastic. We had a great time. Um, Ended up speaking at a church that had four services, so I had to preach the same thing four times in a row, and I want to let you know... I don't like doing that. I don't like to do the same thing more than one time. It was hard enough to... Anyway, uh, It feel like, you know, it's sort of like, ah, whatever. But anyway, it was beautiful. We had a wonderful time. And then we slipped up to the Canadian Rockies for a day. That was amazing. Beautiful, beautiful. But it's always great to be back uh, with you guys. We we miss you when we go. Um, We have been uh, doing a series on Ephesians, as you know by now. And... uh, the, the first half of the book of Ephesians is Paul uh, telling them their story. It's, it's not a narrative like the Gospels per se, but little sketch by sketch. He's, he's going through and he's slowly uh, explaining how they got to where they are, how Jesus saved them even though they were hopelessly broken, and how he, he made them one even though they were hopelessly separate. And now they're a single community whose inheritance and purpose rests solely on Jesus, the one who had saved them. So this story that he's telling them is not a, a peripheral kind of story. It's not just another thing about them. It's, uh, it, it's central to their identity and central to, to who they are. And that's what he's going to, uh, that's what he's going to expound on. And it's not just a re- religious affiliation uh, they're not just changing the place they worship from the temple of Artemis to now the synagogue. This is a, uh, this is a much, different, much different place because the, the churches were often still meeting in synagogues, so I say that. So um, their world has been forever changed. And as I was preparing for this particular sermon, I was, I, I, I was, my mind went back to this great event uh, that, that is you know, displayed so well in a movie um, it's this event, um, the Lake Placid Games in 1980. Uh, how many of you guys remember this event? I remember I was the age of one, remember sitting in front of the television. Now, what do you remember about, what, what do you guys know about the 1980 games in Lake Placid? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Hockey, hockey. all right, hockey. One particular event, probably, um, the, uh, uh, what's called the Miracle on Ice. Now, how many of you guys have seen the movie Miracle? Okay, really? okay good, good, that many of you have. Uh, so now I can, it's, it's a great little movie, it's fantastic. I was able to show Sam and Nathan for the first time and I was excited because I could introduce them to Al Michaels and the greatest call in the history of sports, do you believe in miracles? Yes! You know, that thing was, yes, when it finally came. Um, wonderful movie. But here's, here's what happened in that story. It was more than just a story of the Cold War. It was the story of, of how Herb Brooks, the coach, put this team together. Because they were against, you know, the Soviets who had their own national team. And, most, and some of these guys had played together for 15 years or, had, you know, at least for, like, 5 or 10 years. These guys knew each other well. They had this well-established team that would travel all over and play. Well, Herb Brooks was putting together a team, uh, to the U.S. team, and he was a college coach. And so he was putting the, this team together based on just random college players that were throughout, like, Minnesota and, and the Northeast. And he brings them all together and people are like, what are you doing? Um, how is this going to work? And so he's, he's trying to, to, to get them to work as a cohesive unit. So it's a fun story. Um, and uh, and he, would, he would ask this question often in the middle of their, their practices. He would say, all right, what's your name? And they would shout it out. And he'd say, who do you play for? He would say, Syracuse. Or, what's your name? And they would say, oh, Jims, whatever. And who do you play? (laughs) Sorry, the only name I remember is Mike Ruzioni, and that's probably like most of us. All right, who do you play for? University of Minnesota. So, all right, get on the line. We're going to, we're going to, you know, skate. We're going to work out here. So the team is playing. It's kind of coming together, but it's not really coming together because these guys have individual talent, but they haven't yet learned, as he says, that the name on the front of their jersey is more important than the name on the back of their jersey. So he sees them play one particularly very poor game, an exhibition game before the Olympics, and he's furious with them because they're not taking it seriously. They're scoping out girls in the audience, and they're just like, you know, they're not seeing the gravity of what they have here. And so he, after the game, does not let them go back to the locker room but he makes them stay out on the ice and practice after a game. I don't know if this is factually correct or whatever, but in my mind, it's, it's all exactly right. So don't, don't spoil it for me. This is the way it happened, okay? Um, but he keeps them on the ice and he makes them work out and he is furious with them. He's stomping up and down the ice. Telling them, you guys do not understand. You don't understand. You're playing like individuals. You're not playing to All of these things. And he's so mad at them. So you're watching this and he just makes them skate again and again. And they're so exhausted. They're like throwing up. <laughs> My sons were watching this and they're so mad at the coach at this point. I'm like, just wait, just wait, just wait. And finally, finally, something snaps and one of his players, it's Michael Ruzioni. and he calls out to the coach and the coach looks at him and says, who do you play for? expecting the answer. He's going to just yell out to this college, but no. He says, I play for the United States of America. (laughs) He says, very good. You guys are done. And he lets him go. And there's a whole mindset shift that had to take place here. You see? Now, I think that what Herb Brooks did in that movie is similar to what Paul was trying to get through to the people of Ephesians. Okay, I think uh, there was, there was a, a deeper point here. Um, this is a new assignment. This was a new identity for these hockey players. It was bigger than the thing that used to be about. There was a new identity that took preeminence to those colleges, or so those, those, uh, um, those individual assignments that they used to have. And Paul in Ephesians, he is presenting the new life in Christ kind of like that. He talks about the new culture, this new story. It's bigger than the Ephesians. It's bigger than the old things they used to live for. It's a new story and a new identity. And now he tells us, starting here in this book, he tells us how this new story shapes our behavior. There's outworkings of that. Start in verse 17 now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Oh, we got to stop right here. Okay, Gentiles. What, what is a Gentile? A, 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 a non-Jew, okay? This is a word that Jews use to talk about people that were not a part of their ethnic community. So this is most of the people on the planet, right? And, interesting, he, 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 he's been using this term already all throughout the book of Ephesians. But get this. This is really interesting. Who is he writing to? He's writing to the people of Ephesus. In Turkey, he is writing to a whole bunch of Gentiles. In fact, he's, he's called them that several times, right? This is just a, a term that they would use. And back in, in, uh, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, he says, remember... That at, what, at one time, you Gentiles uh, in the flesh, blah, blah, blah. And in, in chapter three, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. He, he is, he's using that term and he's, he's acknowledging you guys are not people who are ethnically Jewish, okay? He's used it that way. Now, all of a sudden, he says, don't walk as the Gentiles do. So... What is that, what, what is he even doing? He's changing the term. So a Gentile here, he is not indicating what he was before. He's indicating a person um, who, is, who is separate from Christ. So he's pivoting the way he's using it. This is really smart, actually. Um, people who have not been, who, who maybe who, who have just sort of lived according to the spirit of the age um, and uh, um, they're, They've they've lived as Ephesians. They've just gone on and and done their their normal thing, and they have not been renewed. So if we were going to take it to today, Tim Mackey does this, and I love that when he he talks about this. "Let's, Let's bring this to today. If Paul was writing to us, what might he say? He would say, hey, Americans. Okay, he's talking to us as Americans. He might say, I am writing to you to remind you that you also have been included in this great, beautiful, amazing thing, in this salvation. Jesus died for you, and if you live for him, you are part of this new and beautiful body of Christ. Now, Americans, don't live like normal Americans. Don't live in that same way. Don't be a typical American. That's not what defines you anymore. You have a new story. You have a new identity. Yes, is that still true? Are you, you know, ethnically, you're born here or whatever? Yes, of course. But that's no longer the defining thing about you. Maybe it used to be, but it's not anymore. The cross of Christ speaks to our identity in a deep way. Now, He goes on. This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves over or up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity." We often think that our behavior uh, is just a byproduct of our education or our ideas. This is like really good reasons why we might think or live a certain way. Uh, But Paul seems to be indicating something different. He seems to be saying that many times there's something behind our understanding, something that precludes our knowledge or our ignorance in, in any given area. And this can be prominent today in, in our culture too. Now, remember when we started this series, we were talking about the history, the culture of Ephesus and this this great city. We talked about how wealthy it was. It was a port city, um, and, uh, and the, the silversmith trade, and and these all just you know, huge variety of culture and and, and all of these things. We talked about the Temple of Artemis, which was a, a, you know, a fertility cult, and you would go and worship, and there were temple prostitutes, and that was the way that you worshipped. And uh, essentially, we have a culture that was addicted, much like ours, to both greed and sensuality. So there's much we can relate to with the Ephesians here. So... Question is, why do people give themselves over to greed and sensuality? Is it because they truly believe that is the path to purpose? Maybe for a while they believe that, but sometimes people have their own motivations for believing and disbelieving. Can I give you an example? This man. This is Aldous Huxley. He was a the great 20th century writer. He wrote the book Brave New World and a whole bunch of other books and essays. He was a, a writer and philosopher, and he was known around the world for his commitment to humanism, uh, and was very sort of in your face about his his humanism and his disbelief in God. He was really one of the primary thinkers of the day, putting forth uh, uh, these arguments. He and his brothers. They were like spokesmen and and leaders in, in that movement. And in a particularly honest moment, here's what Huxley wrote. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was was simultaneously liberation from a political and economic system, and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. That's a pretty honest moment, isn't it? Saying, in other words, I had a a motivation for believing what I believe. Hey, Bo, can you do me a favor? Can you close that door? Thanks. I had a reason for, for believing that. Okay? Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting this is everyone's path. Please hear me. But for many people uh, in our society, many choose a godless life because it interferes with their desires. And those are the people Paul is talking about. Those who reject God because they want to because there's something deeper, because they are are sort of products of their culture that, that buy into greed and sensuality before all other things. And again, this sounds so familiar. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's been the creed of so many cultures. He continues, verse 20. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him, and we're taught in him. As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Deceitful desires, you ever thought about that phrase? How can desires themselves be deceitful? Well, think about the two things he's mentioning here, sensuality and greed. Yeah, sensuality, that can, that can certainly be a deceitful thing. And again, we're not just talking about this in the sexual realm, although this is either the most predominant, and we can see this all over our culture, but, but the desire of the senses to plunge in to feel something above all things. Sensuality is a desire that can be extremely deceitful. Here's why. Because it tells you that having a particular experience will make life worth living. It won't. Greed is the same thing. It convinces you that if you get that thing, if you have that possession, if you have that toy, if you have that status of being wealthy, if you have that number on your paycheck then you will finally be, live the life you've wanted, that you, ah, finally, here we go. This is what life is all about, that that will give you meaning. And as billionaire after billionaire has discovered, it's not true. It's not true. You see that so often of people who 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 were striving and striving for years and years to finally, finally maintain a certain level of fame or finally get to a certain level of wealth. And they get there and they realize, oh, this is all it is? This is actually quite empty. And it's true because that's a deceitful desire. The desire promises you something and then turns out in the end to be empty and to not follow through. Our fleshly desires for material riches and sensual experiences will ultimately fail us. They will not give us meaning. They will not give us purpose. They will not lead to our enlightenment. They're not going to last, friends. So, more to the point, more to the point, they are not your culture anymore. They're not your culture anymore. So he's saying, take off the old self, take off the old thing. You guys, that's done and that's gone away. Put on the new now. now this isn't just an external thing. He's, he's, he's saying this is, this is who we are at a deeper level, so let's put this on. Christ has come for us. See we live everything in him now. So take off the old and put on the new. I'm really glad you guys didn't wear your Halloween costumes here this morning. You know why? Because <laughs> Halloween's over. So, take off the old, what what season are we in now? Don't you dare say Christmas season. We are in November, this is Thanksgiving season. And we go, and you know what? Now is the time to put away the cute little costumes, all right, that's done. Now we put on the flannels because it's November, you know what I'm saying? There we go, ah, thank you guys. That's what we do, all right? We're putting off the old and putting on the new. Here's the way Eugene Peterson says it in the message. And then take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. You see, even this thing that Paul gets into here that people bristle at a little bit because he's talking so much about behavior you're not understanding, you think this is about behavior, because he's talking about this starting from the in. It's starting from your heart and your minds and an understanding of what Jesus has done for you, and understanding that this is no longer who I am, and that it works its way out. It starts in the inside. It's about letting him fashion us through this new story that we have, This new narrative, this new resurrection that that he's accomplished on the cross and continues to accomplish in us. That's who we are. Finally, the end of the chapter. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. He's not just telling them, don't be naughty. And that's what so many people think of our faith. And it's so sad that so many of us have portrayed it in that way. Stop being bad. Sort of like the old skit. (laughs) Stop it! You know, just, you're doing a bad thing? Stop! Like, that's not what he's saying. He's saying we have a different story now. We have a new culture. The new self that belongs to Jesus has a different way of living. And it's not just stopping with the bad stuff. It's turning it around. You see what he does here? Look at this. Lying is not to be a part of our culture. We have a new way. Now... We promote truth instead. It's not just eliminating something. It's putting something else in. We don't steal. You know what we do instead? Here's what Paul's calling them to do. I love this. Instead of just stopping stealing, he says, instead, work hard so we can give to others. How cool is that? This is your identity in Jesus. We don't, like, we're going to get angry, right? You're going to feel anger. In fact, sometimes we ought to feel anger. Sometimes when we see something terrible happen, you shouldn't be passive. You should be angry. But how do you respond to that anger? Not by blowing up. Not by getting personal. Not by steamrolling a person. Instead, do your best to work it out by nightfall so judges don't take, or grudges don't take root inside of you. We don't tear down with our words. We actively seek to build one another up so people feel the grace of Jesus when they talk to us. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. As Christ forgave you. It's our culture. And it's not just a random, well, this is the way we do it now. Now, first of all, I know that we all fall short of this. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Do I fall short of this? Yes, I do. Your old pastors and old, you know, that you grew up with, do they fall short of it? Yes. Did your parents? Yes. Other authority figures? Yes. Brothers and sisters? Yes. Cousins? Yes. Best friends? Yes. We all fall short of this. And this is part of our story is that Jesus died to make us new and that's a process. I still need his resurrection life in me. How about you guys? So the fact that we fall short of this does not uh, invalidate it. In fact, to me, what it does is it, it completely validates. It validates our need for a Savior and our continuing need for a Savior. Because it starts with Jesus. Jesus, see, I love that he bases this. He comes right back to Christ, see. Why do we forgive? Not just because this is a random new way that we're going to do things. We forgive because Jesus forgives us. And we are Jesus people. You are a Jesus person. Do you know that? A Jesus person. Yeah, you might say I'm a Christian, I'm a church, whatever. You are a person of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. Do you understand me? This is, we've been given this new beautiful gift of inheritance. Access to a family. And we have him. And that supersedes everything. It's a new way to be a human being type person. I've told you guys the story years ago, but I want to come back to it because I love it. Years ago, I visited Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. And uh, this is a, an extremely important place for our, our country's history. This was the place where Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant. And the, the end of the Civil War uh, happened right here. The two armies met. The two generals met. Uh, Grant wired uh, President Lincoln, and they discussed terms of surrender the following day. The war was over, and the terms were extremely generous. It's one of the reasons I'm so thankful for President Lincoln in our history because it could have just gone on and on, except he was very generous with the terms for the Confederate soldiers. Here were the terms they would all receive parole passes and not be hung. Instead, here's what they had to do they had to array themselves the next day and march before the Union Army. They had to take down their flags and fold them up, lay them down, lay down their ammunition. And lay down their weapons and promise to never again take, our, take up arms against the United States. And General Joshua Chamberlain wrote about this event as he was overseeing uh, um, this surrender. And he wrote with the most moving words as he watched line after line come through. And these men who have been fighting this, this hopeless you know, cause for years, as they surrendered and as they laid down their rifles and laid down uh, uh, their flags and full of them, and he, he talks about one, one man in particular who had been, uh, he'd been a high-ranking officer for the Confederate Army. And he said this, as he fold, folded up his flag, he looked up at General Chamberlain, and he said, Sir, and he looked up at the, the, the Union flag, the American flag, and he pointed, and he said, Sir, I will fight for that flag as hard as I fought for this one. That's repentance. It's a change of allegiance. It's a change of identity. I am no longer this. I now have a greater cause. And that's what we are invited into, to feel that change, that deeper change in us and to understand that it starts in here with who we are, with what Jesus has done in here and it works its way out. It's not legalism. It's not looking on the outside saying, now it's finally time to be good. That's not what this is about. This is about understanding what Christ has done for us and walking in his way a better way. So let me ask you what Herb Brooks asked his team. Who do you play for? I think Coach Brooks and Paul are saying the same thing because he knows how tribal people are. Back then, it was all about Jews and Gentiles and blah bitty, blah blah blah, and these different cultural clashes. Well, today, that's not so much the issue, but there's other things. If I say, Who do you play for in an honest moment? Some, maybe some of you go just like the hockey players do and say, Oregon Ducks! <laughs> Oregon State Beavers! Now, I, I doubt that that's going to be the defining issue for too many of us today, although some of you guys are pretty intense, and I understand that. I, get that. I think probably. The, 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 the greatest parallel today in, 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 in our identity and in, in our places we get tribal are right here. Ooh, ooh. Paul might ask, who do you play for? In an exceptionally honest moment, some might say, the Republican Party and the president. <laughs> <laughs> I see how you did that. That was funny. Some might say, who, who do you play for? The Democratic resistance against the president. Whatever. Okay, now he, guys, I I know politics are important, and I am not minimizing this in any way. But we're about to come into another presidential election season, and I, I hate it so much. I hate it. I hate every bit of it. Not just the TV commercials. And here's why I hate it. I hate it because every time this comes up, even though we only get to vote one one time on this every four years, every one of you only gets one vote every four years, unless you guys are doing something shady. <laughs> okay. That's the amount of input we have in this. One time every four years. And yet so many times I see the people of God taking on these as their primary identity and place of loyalty. Friends, I want to tell you in the most loving way I can, this is not the way you learned Christ. And I see suddenly them taking on the, 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 the arguments and the vitriol and sometimes the willful blindness and the, will, the blind allegiance to a person or to a party because they say, Ugh, here I stand. And it's like, why? What, what do you do? Like, you forget you're not acting like a Jesus person anymore. Now you're acting just like any random person on that side as if this is your flag. Friends, these are not your flags. Do you hear me? I know I'm stepping on toes, and I'm not sorry because this is the thing. You are Jesus people first. You are Jesus people first. And I know there. I know there's truth to be fought for, and I know there's justice to be sought. And all of these things, whatever side you come out on, that I probably disagree with you in ten times, no matter where you are, and I don't care because we're first Jesus people. See. And that means this changes everything, the way that we interact with one another, and the way we interact with the world too. The thing that grieves me about this is people lead with this. And I hate it when the church leads with this, because this is not what we're supposed to lead with. When the first thing they see about us is the the person that you're voting for, the person that you're excited to defend, or the one you want to go out and crucify, that's not who we're supposed to be. That's not what we're leading with. We're supposed to lead with Jesus. I would love for every interaction that we have, even for people who totally disagree with you, to walk away from that interaction and think, you know what, that person was really kind. Like I disagreed with them on pretty much everything, but that person was kind. Like I feel valued. And in fact, I can actually see their point of view a little better because they were kind. Do you know that actually happens? Not very often on social media. But that's what happens. Who do you play for? Who do you play for? You know, we play for Jesus Christ. That's who we play for. We're not beholden to any uh, individual in power. Not, we're not beholden to any party in power, or even any philosophy in power because our kingdom is not of this world. We play for Jesus. Can we stand together?